Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, uplevel your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're talking all things thyroid with our special guest, my friend and fellow naturopathic doctor, Hanisha Patel. Dr. Hanisha specializes in women's health, including PCOS, hypothyroidism, and infertility. Having personally overcome autoimmune challenges with the support of naturopathic medicine, she now has a virtual telehealth practice where she supported hundreds of women on their journey to great health. She also hosts her own podcast, Mahan Health, where she engages in enlightening discussions with leading doctors of natural medicine. She's a doctor. She's a mom. She's a published advocate for women's health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hanisha. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be here. I'm so excited. A fun fact that I think everyone needs to know is that you and I were classmates at Bastyr University. So we spend time together as student doctors and have watched each other kind of grow into finding our passion in the fertility field. And it's so exciting to reconnect with you. Yes, it is. I know. And I love, I I remember having uh, clinical rotations with you and it was just, I feel like I learned so much from you and I I really appreciate all that you have done. And then, um, and then, yeah, how we've come kind of full circle into this fertility journey. Yeah. I was thinking about, I know I was on your podcast, maybe three or four, four years ago or maybe even longer. So it's really yes. special that we're able to do this again and focus really on fertility. And since then, since we recorded, you've had a baby. Yes, I know. So much has shifted. Yeah, I think it's been three or four years and we need to have you back for again, for sure. Um, but yeah, I've had a baby since and um, he's 20 months old now. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just so grateful. So excited to be here. So excited to be a mom now, um, kind of on the other side of the fertility journey. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Well, you have your son and you have shared about your own experience with Hashimoto's and PCOS and what that meant for your own fertility journey, which everybody has their ups and downs and you're pretty open about just the experience that you had thinking about your fertility. And you've said, you know, all your labs were normal, but a deeper investigation showed you things that you could really work on. And so I thought it would be fun to kick off our episode today, just learning about some of the patterns or themes that you notice in yourself and in your patients when we have those normal labs, but we're still struggling to get pregnant. Yes, that is such a good question. So, um, so yes, like you said, for my own personal experience, I was told that I, everything was normal, you know, all my labs were normal and they only checked for TSH. Um, and that is the thyroid stimulating hormone. And that was the only lab that they actually tested for. And that was within the conventionally normal ranges. And um, so, but some of the symptoms I had that you might also be experiencing, which might prompt you to dig a little deeper, was I was dealing with constipation pretty much my entire life. Uh, Very, very sluggish digestion. I would have one bowel movement a week and they kept telling me that was just maybe my normal. And I was like- I know. Now I think about it and I'm like, how did anyone just like, let me live like that? I was in pain all the time because I wasn't passing a bowel movement. And, um, another symptom that I had was, uh, irregular menstrual cycles. I would get my period every two or three months, maybe four months. I would, I wasn't having a regular period. And then another symptom was 
I was feeling really fatigued and exhausted um, a lot, especially throughout college. I really felt that. Um, and then I also had a lot of joint pain. I had joint pain in my wrists. Um, I would get a lot of low back pain. I had low back pain since I was nine years old. And the doctors would just say that, oh, maybe it's because you play basketball. And I was like, I'm not in the WNBA over here. Like this is, this is like fourth grade or fifth grade basketball. It's not that crazy you know, and, um, that was, that was it. Like I would experience those kind of things. And so those are things to look out for other symptoms that, um, that may indicate Hashimoto's really, or anything that has to do with like slowness. So I always think of like an underactive thyroid is everything goes slow. So that, like I said, so slower digestion, slower periods, slower, um, like energy, you know, everything is just lower and slower. And that's, that's when I think of underactive thyroid. Um, and so other symptoms could be something like depression that is really common. And, um, I will say personally, I actually dealt with more anxiety. And so just because you experience that doesn't mean that you don't have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's because usually anxiety is more associated with an overactive thyroid, but it can always be intertwined. Um, and so those are like kind of the big things to look out for when it comes to your thyroid health. Isn't it interesting talking about thyroid disease and PCOS? And there's all of these overlapping symptoms, so the fatigue, the menstrual irregularities, the inflammatory symptoms. And we know mm -hmm. that it takes sometimes a really long time to get a diagnosis of PCOS. And I think we're really highlighting it with your story. It's like, well, because it could be this and it could be this. And there's so many... Um, overlapping symptoms, especially when you have another diagnosis, it would have been right. easy for someone to say, oh, this is just your Hashimoto's, mm -hmm. right? And then it doesn't give us the opportunity to add that precision to our treatment plan. So I think that's so important that you've highlighted that. Yes, absolutely. And what one of the things that I think is really important to note is that we have thyroid receptors on every organ of our body, right? So our thyroid gland does so much. Like, I feel like we don't give it the importance that it really has. Like it does so much for our body. So if, if our thyroid is off, whether it's underactive or overactive, that's going to impact literally everything. That's why these symptoms feel so quote unquote random, right? Like people are always like, oh, these symptoms are so random like that I have, but it's because it's all connected to your thyroid and your thyroid controls pretty much everything. Yeah. I talk about this all the time that you have yeah. thyroid hormone receptors, like you just said, throughout your whole body, including your ovaries, your uterus, yes. it's mm -hmm. everywhere. And you kind of mm -hmm. touched on this already, but patients often come to me and they've just had a thyroid stimulating hormone or a TSH and no one has ever measured their free thyroid hormone. Um, and this, you know, I'm sure you have this two patients come and they say, I've done every test. I've looked yes. at everything, yes. I've asked all the questions, <laughs> but then we just see a TSH and we realize there's actually a really thorough thyroid evaluation that we can do. So will you talk to us a little bit about how actually knowing your level of free thyroid hormone can be helpful? Yes. So yeah, free thyroid hormone is essential. So the TSH is the um, hormone that comes from our brain. Okay. So very important. We definitely want to test that. Okay. Um, but then that tells our thyroid to produce T4, free T4, and then that converts into free T3. So 
these are things that are actually used in our body. So free T4 is more abundant usually in our body and free T3 is the more active thyroid hormone. So that's what your body actually utilizes in your uh, for all the organs that we talked about that have the thyroid receptors, yeah. the free T3 is what's utilized. And so when we check the free T4 and free T3, we can understand if there's some sort of disconnect between the TSH and actually producing the t free T4 or free T3. And if there's a disconnect between converting the T4 to T3, right? And so that's where, so for example, Right now, we know a lot, uh, or the most common thyroid medication is levothyroxine, um, and that is the generic, the brand name is the Synthroid, right? And so that is actually a T4 medication. So it it is a synthetic T4. And if our body doesn't know how to properly convert the T4 to T3, that's not really going to be that helpful. And so... Um, so in many cases, I have so many patients who will come to me, they're like, I'm on my thyroid meds, I'm taking the levothyroxine or Synthroid or whatever it is, and I still feel all of my symptoms, but my labs look better, but all they're looking at is TSH. And so, so it's important to check for the free T4 and free T3 to make sure that those are also in, in balance, because if those are off, so usually since we're talking about Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, with an underactive thyroid, we'll see that free T3 is lower or free T4 is lower, and then TSH is generally higher. And that's because the production um, of free T4 and free T3 is lower. And so it sends this negative feedback to your brain and it tells your brain like, hey, we need more thyroid hormone, like help us out, help us out. And then your, your brain is trying to do it. And so then it increases the TSH. It's like, okay, I'm trying to make more thyroid hormone, but something is off. And so we need to be able to support that something. And we'll, I know we're going to talk about all of the things that we can do, but that is what that is telling us. Okay, this is so valuable and I have a million follow-up questions, so I hope I don't lose any of them in my brain. My first question is, do you have a TSH that you like to see for your fertility patients? Oh, yes, definitely. Honestly, it's for everyone. And and it's really interesting because I do I I do find it fascinating because the conventional ranges do change when you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, and the ranges that you you want them when they're pregnant is really what we want them all the time. And so that's between 0.5 and 2.5. And so I, I just think it's fascinating because uh, like the only time conventionally they care about optimal is when you're pregnant. And I'm like, but we need to be optimal all the time to then support us in being able to get pregnant one naturally, um, but also just living our lives. Right. And so, um, so yeah, so usually I'm looking TSH. I want it between 0.5 and 2.5 ideally. Yeah, that's, I feel the exact same. And so this is something that I see, you know, this, the conventional reference range is like 0.45 to 4.5, but I'll have patients that come in and their TSH is six and they'll say, I have been diagnosed with unexplained infertility. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not unexplained. I can clearly see an explanation for this. And then we restore thyroid function or maybe it's, you know, adrenals and thyroid or there's something hormonally going on. But I guess this is just me making the case for this thorough lab evaluation, because in my mind, it's not really unexplained. Right. Yeah. Oh, 
uh, that like I have so many emotions that go through my <laughs> my mind and body. Like I feel like my whole body. Whenever you said that, I was like, oh, like it just it just frustrates me so much because yes, clearly it is not unexplained because as we just talked about, we have thyroid receptors on every organ in our body, including our ovaries, and so it can impact our it can impact our eggs and the quality, right? And so how how we're in terms of like our genetic composition, it can impact that, but it can also impact ovulation. And so remember whenever I was talking about how I would skip my periods um, and, and that was, so I don't really know what came first. I'm based on like, based on a lot of my history, I'm thinking the thyroid stuff came first, but I don't really know if it was the thyroid stuff or the PCOS, like I don't really know and it's all connected. And so that can lead to anovulatory periods. And I was actually not ovulating. And any doctor I spoke to, they all they told me was just come back when you want to get pregnant, you know? And I was, uh, I, and I didn't, before I started working with the naturopathic doctor, I really didn't know what else to do. And then when I started working with the naturopathic doctor is when I really learned that hey, this isn't normal and we can do some things about it and get my periods to be more regular by supporting my thyroid. Because now if my thyroid is supported, I can support my ovaries in doing it, doing their job. Um, and if we're not supporting that, then, then we can see higher rates of infertility. Absolutely. I was at a conference a few years ago with a reproductive endocrinologist who is speaking and was talking about our granulosa cells. So these are the cells that surround our egg cells and our ovaries. They're kind of, I call them the egg cell helper cells. They help to nourish our egg cells and receive signals from the brain. And the way that she explained this, it made so much sense in my brain. She said thyroid hormone is required to activate our granulosa cells to receive the signals from the brain in order to mature those egg cells. And so obviously if we have low thyroid hormone, we're not going to get activation of those granulosa cells. We're going to have more anovulation, like you just said. And I, now I always think about the thyroid hormone activating those granulosa cells. And it's very compelling when you think about it that way. Um, I realized as you were talking that maybe I needed to take a step back because Hashimoto's in itself might not be a familiar concept or term for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes open up my Instagram for listener questions to the podcast and say, Hey, I have a guest coming on. Are there questions that are coming up for you? And someone wrote in and said, I have been diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Does that mean I have autoimmune thyroid disease? So will you take a minute and just give us a primer on what Hashimoto's is? Yes, that is a great question. So um, Hashimoto's is the autoimmune type of hypothyroidism. And so um, that it would be considered an autoimmune disease. uh, But I will say about I think it's about 90% of people with hypothyroidism usually have Hashimoto's as well. But does that mean you're doomed to having symptoms and feeling terrible? No, not at all. I, To me, when I found out and was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, it was actually very empowering because I was working with a naturopathic doctor and I knew that, wow, there are things I can do now because I didn't know what the problem was before. Now I was like, I can feel better. Like, this is so exciting. I know I can feel better. And so, so that is something that I just want to, you know, kind of let you know, like it's, it's, you're not doomed to anything. It would be considered an autoimmune condition, but you're not doomed to anything. And, um, and it's, it really comes down to being able to support your, 
your mind, body, and spirit in, in healing from that. Yeah. So on that note, let's talk antibodies because an autoimmune disease means you have an elevation of antibodies, in this case, thyroid antibodies. And sometimes we hear from, um, you know, colleagues like, there's no point in monitoring antibodies because symptoms don't necessarily correlate with the level. So in other words, you can have a high level of antibodies and not be super symptomatic, or you can have just mildly elevated antibodies and feel pretty symptomatic. And that is true. Um, but the other thing we hear is like, oh, there's nothing you can do to decrease antibodies. So why bother? From your experience, I just want to hear your hot take on that. Yes. Well, one, there's definitely things that we can do. And there's so much research that's shown that we can reduce the antibodies. Can it fluctuate? Yes, that is absolutely true. And like you said, there are people who will have very little to no symptoms and have really high antibodies or vice versa. They have all these symptoms, but low antibodies. And so it's treating the individual, right? So each person is different. So just because you don't have antibodies doesn't mean your symptoms aren't real, right? Or just because you have high antibodies and you feel fine doesn't mean that's something that we really need to like force on to, you know, we don't need to do some strenuous treatment. Oftentimes what I usually see, and I, I've seen this for myself personally as well, uh, with the after you've done all the things in terms of supporting the antibody. So let's let's talk about that first and then we'll talk about what to do after because I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> um, but the first thing, one of the main things to do if you do ex have those antibodies is having a gluten-free diet. So gluten has shown to partake in something called molecular mimicry. So um, the protein from gluten, the gliadin protein more specifically, can look very similar to the thyroid hormone. And so we talked about the thyroid receptors on every cell um, or every organ. And so what will happen is the, the cell will take in the the gliadin protein, thinking that it's the thyroid hormone because it looks so similar. And then it comes into the cell and then the cell in, inside, they realize they're like, oh, wait, this is not the thyroid hormone, like intruder alert, like code red, code red, code red. And so now your immune system. So they're like calling on the immune system. Like we have an intruder. We need to get this guy out of here. And so they do that. And then um, your immune system comes and kills off that cell. And that was your own cell. And so now that's where that autoimmune comes from. You, your own immune system is attacking itself. And so, um, so that's where that comes from. So simply eliminating gluten from your diet can be a huge thing to reduce those antibodies and support, um, support the reversal of those symptoms as well. So that's like one of the big things. And I can definitely go into more if you'd like, but that is uh, for me personally, and I will kind of share my personal story. I had probably, I actually had the second most antibodies that I've ever seen in any of my patients. So um, an overachiever, I guess, right? right? Of course. Um, so when I first was tested for my antibodies, I had 965 antibodies wow. and the like allowed amount is is usually around 34, but now they're even saying even less, less than 19, less than 18. Um, and so 34, let's say even the higher level is 34. Mine had, I had 965. Okay. Wow. So crazy. So I was through the roof. I had all these symptoms that I already mentioned. So, and it was just 
clearly explained in that moment. Um, and then I went gluten-free for three months straight and retested my antibodies. And within three months, it went down to about 500. And so it made a huge difference just by going gluten-free. I wasn't necessarily, I was still eating like gluten-free pasta or gluten-free, you know, I wasn't necessarily eating all whole foods or anything like that. Like I was still eating gluten-free cupcakes. You know what I mean? Like I was still having all those things and it still went down that much. And so then I realized the power of that and started kind of shifting things even more to um, eating more whole foods and, um, and, and exercising with my body and supporting my body in that way. And, um, and we can definitely get into exercise a bit more, but then also the supplements, the, um, some of the supplements that have been shown to reduce antibodies are, um, uh, inositol is a really yes. powerful one. And I really love using that in my practice. I take it myself still regularly. Um, and another one that I really love that I didn't discover till later. Um, actually, I, I actually, I, I guess I did learn about it in med school, but I didn't really utilize it much in my practice until I was postpartum and my thyroid went off again. <laughs> um, and which that is normal. It's a part of the journey and that's okay. Ideally you have the support. So you're working with a naturopathic doctor and you have that support to like, be like, okay, what can I do to support myself now? Um, and so the thing that I learned about postpartum or started taking postpartum was black seed oil. Oh. Have you, have you, have you, I don't need this. It? Tell us more. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was like, I remember learning about it in school and then we didn't really like use it much. And I didn't really know any practitioners who used it. And then I started doing some extra research on like, what are things that are safe while nursing? Um, and black seed oil is actually generally considered safe while nursing. Of course, talk to your doctor more specifically, um, but we don't recommend it during pregnancy. So that is something to be mindful of. Um, and so with black seed oil, it has been shown, there are actually quite a few studies that I would be, um, I would definitely look into, but there's quite a few studies that show that black seed oil just over a period of about three months can reduce antibodies significantly. I forget the exact percentage. I'm so bad with percentages, um, but they can reduce the antibodies significantly. And so, um, so that is something that I've been recommending more and more in my practice, even before, you know, you get pregnant or um, are nursing. And like I said, I, I do have people stop it when they are pregnant, just because we don't know about the safety during that time. Uh, but outside of that, making sure you have the adequate nutrients. Um, some of the main things, like one of the biggest causes I know of my Hashimoto's, actually a few of them, I'll mention a few of them, was I had an iron deficiency. And so iron is huge. It's how our, how we create the, or produce the blood. And then that circulates through our bodies. And that's how we transport thyroid hormone, right? So we need to make sure that we have enough iron. And I always check ferritin levels as well, because that helps us understand your iron stores. So um, I think the range for ferritin right now is like 13 to like 300 or something crazy. Huge range. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge range. Um, I, my levels was still seven. Oh, so you can see why I was so tired, uh, but I, my, I, my level was at seven and ideally, usually we say we want it to be around 50. Um, but I think some more research recently has been saying even 75 is optimal. Um, and so making sure that those are 
you know, those levels look good. And then vitamin D is another big one. Vitamin D deficiency is so common and just also insufficiency. Again, the conventional ranges for vitamin D are between 30 to 100 usually. Um, and I, my level, I think my level was like nine or something. Like I was just, <laughs> everything was off for me that just, and it made sense. Um, but so 30 to 100 is the conventional range. I usually say for people of like European descent, we want to see between like 60 to 80 at least. Um, and for people of color, we want to see 80 to 100. And so that's also, you know, I think it's really important to have those discussions because a lot of doctors don't even understand that it could be different for not not just race, but also sex, right? Like, you know, there's so many things that change with both men and women, especially actually that's even more different. Um, and so, so yeah, vitamin D, iron, making sure those are, those are optimal. And then working on your gut health, working on your stress, like all of these things play a role, your gut health, my digestion, like I said, was like really off. Um, and so, you know, having that support there and then, um, antibiotics and steroid use have shown to increase risk of thyroid disease as well. Um, and as well as some other medications too. So certain think antidepressants can increase risk as well. And so, you know, those are things to be mindful of. If you are taking those or you've taken them in the past, like how can you then support yourself while taking them or, or to kind of recover. What I love about all the nutrients you just highlighted is not only are they important for the thyroid, but also many other factors of reproductive health, like the health of our ovaries, the health of yeah. our immune system in general. And it's mm -hmm. cool because when you start to implement these thyroid nutrients, you kind of explain the pathway, like your brain talks to your thyroid and then your thyroid responds. And then that free thyroid hormone travels throughout the body. These nutrients, they help you produce thyroid hormone. They help you convert thyroid hormone from yes. its, you know, less potent to its more potent form. So I think we're just really building the case for these foundational pieces. That's nutrition, yes. lifestyle, sleep, stress management, all these things you just said. Oh, yeah. Sleep is also huge. Yeah. Yeah. I can't forget about that one. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to send a few more thyroid related listener questions your way, okay. because yeah. this is such a hot topic and people tend to have a lot of thoughts and questions and are really um, eager to learn more. So um, we had a listener write in and they said, if I begin thyroid hormone replacement now, how long until I might see a benefit? Oh, that is a good question. So Everyone is so different. Um, Classic doctor, so, like it depends, right? <laughs> I know, I know. And I know that answer like is, it sucks to hear sometimes, but it just really is so true. And this is why you really have to make sure you're working with a practitioner um, who knows what they're doing um, in terms of the thyroid medications, because it can also like, it takes time to even figure out which dose you need. Um, and it's, something that I'm always like, we need to check and test every four to six weeks in the beginning while we're figuring out the dose that actually works for you. So we need to continue testing your labs um, every four to six weeks even um, just to make sure that that medication, that dose is the right dose for you. And so, so it really depends, but there are some people who can notice differences right away. Some people don't notice differences no matter what. And that's because we need to address some of these underlying things that we talked about. But if you've already addressed all of these things, then it might be 
maybe even changing a medication. And that's the other, you know, there are different thyroid medications. There, there's the more natural ones like the compounded thyroid medications or the armor thyroid. Um, and then there's of course the levothyroxine that we discussed, which is the most commonly prescribed, but sometimes, um, there, some people respond differently to different things. And so it really, really just depends. Um, cause there are certain people who respond better to the natural medication, but some people respond better to the synthetic and either is okay, but it's, it's a process in figuring that out, which isn't always a fun process, but it, it's usually worth it as long as you're working with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Necessary process, right? Yes. So along those lines, let's say someone decides they think they want to get pregnant soon. They know that they need some thyroid support. So you're kind of doing that trial and error of making a change to the meds, doing your management, really trying to zone in on the right dose for them. At what point do you tell your patient, you're good, go ahead and try to conceive because thyroid, it looks stable. Yeah, that's a great question. So usually most people I have, um, like I'd like to see it at stable ranges for at least three to six months, um, just to make sure that you are ready. And, but the other part of it is that when you do get pregnant, it's also very possible that things could shift. Spoiler so, alert, it's going to change again. Yeah. So it's, it's a process, but ideally if it's stable beforehand, that's going to help support you throughout your pregnancy as well. Um, so for example, for myself, everything was really stable prior to pregnancy. And then, um, and then I got pregnant and everything went all off again. And so I had to switch up my medications and all of that. And so that is, um, that is something to, you know, be mindful of. And so, um, I do usually, especially for, for my women who have been dealing with hypothyroidism, uh, before pregnancy, I do have them test their labs by six weeks pregnant just to make sure. And then we keep kind of retesting throughout your pregnancy, um, just to make sure not as frequently, usually as four to six weeks, um, as long as things are stable, but if things aren't stable, then we definitely want to check in more frequently. That's the perfect lead in to the next listener question. They wrote in and said, should I expect for my thyroid to be monitored differently during my pregnancy? Is someone going to ask me to check in on this? How do you prep your patients for what to expect during pregnancy? Yes, definitely. So yeah, someone will likely, I mean, ideally your OB will check in um, with your thyroid hormone um, more frequently. I will say that Oftentimes in the conventional system, because if you have a hypothyroid condition or um, diagnosis already, they will consider you high risk almost immediately. And the reality is that's not always the case, um, because if it, things are well managed, you're not you're not at high risk. And so um, so I say that to kind of help you feel not as scared, because a lot of times you end up going through this like um medical intervention cascade of events because they consider you high risk and now you have to be induced early. And then because you got induced, now um, you have to, you know, now you have to take the pain medications and now that's prolonged the labor and now you need a C-section and you go through this whole thing. And I know a lot of the women I'm sure that you are working with and talking to and who are listening to this are more naturally minded and would like to have a more natural, you know, labor and delivery and birth. And so 
to kind of help support you in that. I would definitely recommend working with a doula, working with a midwife, um, ideally even working with a naturopathic doctor along with that so that you know, like, hey, like my levels are stable. That doesn't mean I'm high risk. Like I, everything should be okay as long as everything is stable. Well, I think you're doing a great job of empowering your patients to understand how they can advocate for themselves. And this extends beyond just trying to conceive and pregnancy, right? Because then we enter the postpartum time. And I'm hoping that you'll just give us a quick glimpse into what your postpartum life looked like as you managed your thyroid condition. Yes. Oh, you know, postpartum is a whole different ballpark, right? <laughs> I mean, and before I went through the experience, I've supported a lot of mothers through that experience. And it really is just like, until you really experience it, you're like, wow, I like, even though I knew like a lot of things were coming up and I was going to support it, it's just, it's a whole different world. Um, and so, um, so during that postpartum period, my thyroid definitely went off again. Like it was stable throughout pregnancy and then it went off. And then now the higher dose of the medication was actually too much and bringing me into a hyper state. And, you know, it was, all the things going off. Um, and then you also have a like wonderful little newborn. And, you know, in the the heart, I remember in the beginning, the first six weeks were definitely the hardest for me. Um, just like figure out, I was like, I like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, I I don't know how to be a mom. I don't know if I'm doing this right. Breastfeeding was a struggle. My son had a tongue tie and he would like every time he latched, it would be so painful. And so we both actually did a lot of craniosacral therapy and um and chiropractic um but also i had been doing my meditation and breath work throughout my pregnancy postpartum and um and then of course taking all the nutrients that we mentioned and trying to eat well um and take care of my body in that way and i think a lot of all of those things helped well the craniosacral really helped in terms of both of our nervous systems just like kind of coming down and relaxing our nervous systems a little bit. And then he started latching and, and it was never painful again. I never used like a nipple butter or anything again. So that's an added side note. Um, but it was definitely hard. I remember it was so hard to get my labs done. Cause I was like, when do I go do this? I'm like, there's so much going on. It was like, when do I go get my labs done? And I was like, wow, like this is what my patients experience. Real life. Right? Like this is real life. Like how do I go and get my labs done right now? And, and I had put in the order. I remember I put in my order for uh, not, I didn't do it, but I had uh, my doctor put in the order at like four weeks postpartum and I didn't get it done till about 10 weeks uh, postpartum, you know? And it was just like one of those things. Cause I was like, Oh, I got to do it at six weeks. And I was like, when, like, there's so much going on. And I'm like, I don't even know how long I can leave the baby. And like, I don't really want to take the baby to the lab. Like, it was just so much. And I had the squirmiest baby. He moved. So he's literally still fights the car seat every time. Um, but he fought it from the beginning. And I'm like, dang, this kid started early. <laughs> he was squirming around, didn't want to sit in the car seat. And it was just a struggle. And so, so yeah, I think that was like the hardest part was actually going to get my labs done to see like, 
whoa, everything is off again. And now com coming back to supporting myself. And that was where I found that black seed oil um, and started taking that and literally was the biggest game changer um, postpartum. And I'm so grateful that I have that background. And that's why I'm sharing now. Well, it's really powerful and compelling to hear this story of, you know, with two diagnoses, Hashimoto's and PCOS, that sometimes people can feel really defeated when we start to put these labels and we have this expectation for what our fertility journey will be like. And you've shown us that, you know, it's not easy. You have to assemble the care team. You have to be an advocate for yourself. But once you start applying these tools that are available, you can restore some balance to these systems. And let's zone in on ovulation because that's kind of the topic of the day. You've talked a lot about how you overcame this anovulation that you were experiencing and whether it was the PCOS first or the Hashimoto, so we'll never know. But um, we know that there's a variety of factors that can affect ovulation. And you recently shared on your social media a couple of those factors that you see most often impacting ovulation. And I think this is something that we can just be aware of. So I'm hoping that you'll share with us a few things that, you know, maybe if you go through this, your your ovulation might be impacted for a few cycles. Yes. Yeah. No. And, and that's a, that's a great point because sometimes if we skip our skip ovulation, that could be normal. Like if we skip it like once a year, yeah. um, that's actually pretty normal, maybe even twice, but if it's happening regularly, that's when it's an issue. Um, and that was, that was the issue for me. It was happening very regularly. And I had, um, and there are different types of, um, PCOS. And it turned out the type that I had was the adrenal type as well as the inflammatory type. And so my, um, my testosterone was actually normal, uh, but my DHEA levels were really high mm -hmm. and that shows that adrenal issue. So that that's that stress, right? So my stress levels, and that's where I really went honed in on the meditation and the breath work and all of that and yoga. Um, and it made a world of a difference, but you know, still, it's always the adrenal support as well. Like the adaptogens were so helpful. Um, but beyond that, the other part of mine was the inflammatory type, right? Because I had the, the, the IBS things going on with my digestion. Um, and that was also a part of what had probably contributed to my PCOS. Um, and, uh, and then of course the Hashimoto's as well. And so, so when it gets to that level, if you're not ovulating regularly, every other month, every month, um, then, then that's where we really need to address that. But if there are times where you can skip ovulation, like for example, if you're traveling, flying and switching time zones, that can impact ovulation. Um, you might skip ovulation that cycle. Um, and the other things are like, if you have an infection, if you're sick, because when we're sick, our immune system has to work extra hard to make sure that we can get rid of this infection. Um, and it shuts off our reproductive system, not completely, but it shuts it off to the point where it's like, we can't have a baby when we're sick. And this is why um, a lot of times when we have these health issues, like chronic diseases, like autoimmune issues, PCOS, Hashimoto's, things like that, it makes it more difficult to get pregnant because your body's like, I can't get pregnant at a time like this. I'm still trying to heal. Right. Um, and so so that's something that could impact it. So if you just if you just had a cold, maybe you might skip ovulation. But if you had something more long term, like we mentioned, then it then that's something we need to address. Um, some other things could be 
exercise. So over-exercising can impact ovulation as well. And that is something that we have seen. Um, and then also under eating. So not eating enough. Um, so people, a lot of women that I've worked with have a history of eating disorders. And that is um, unfortunately be because of our, our culture had promoted under eating for so long and still does sometimes. And if I see someone talking about eating 1200 calories, I lose my shit. <laughs> Yes. Like, sorry, excuse my language, but I'm like, we need more than that. We lose, we burn 1200 calories just sitting here doing nothing. Okay. And most of us are not doing nothing. Most of us are moving and active. And, you know, even if we're not exercising regularly, like we're moving. Right. Um, and so we need to consume more. And so making sure that we are eating enough, getting our healthy fats and proteins. I always, the goal that I usually have for my patients is around 2000 to 2,500 calories per day, trying to get like almost a hundred grams of protein a day, you know, just making sure that you're eating enough. Um, and that's usually what I eat. I usually eat about 2000 to 2,500 calories per day now. And that was something that I couldn't have even imagined before, which also can affect your thyroid too, as well as the, the ovulation. So, um, so those are all connected. And I think I, I, I can't yeah. remember if I'm missing one right now. You nailed but. it. But I think you're, I mean, we, we grew up in the age of like Cosmopolitan Magazine, you know, women's health and all these very restrictive food plans. And it plays a role. I'm also thinking about when we were in school and we'd have final exams. My ovulation struggled so bad with Ooh, yes. that level of, you know, and then finals. And those things can have an impact. But like mm -hmm. you said, I find for those one-off, you know, an infection, you have a fever or you travel, it's usually one cycle that you don't ovulate and it returns to normal the next one. So we just watch it for looking yeah. for those patterns. Right. Yeah. 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 And that, and it's totally okay and normal. And so that is nothing to worry about. It's more if it's happening consistently. And um, I will say, I actually just have, I have a friend right now. Um, she's not a patient. She's a friend. Um, I, and I think I got to make that very clear because she was texting me about, uh, you know, how she's trying to get pregnant right now. And, um, she's had a few, she's tried a few times for a few months. And I do think there's something that we could work on, of course. Um, but she was telling me, she's like, you made it look so easy to get pregnant. And I was like, actually, I worked on my hormones for about seven years before I got pregnant. So it really was not easy at all. And so I really want to put that out there too. Like it, like there, like, especially if you have these things going on, like, even if you don't like optimizing your fertility, optimizing your hormones is going to help not only you, but your future baby as well. And so, um, and so I think that's really important to consider. So important to look at the timeline. We've learned so much about your journey and you've helped to illuminate the need for stress reduction and mindfulness and kind of that mental, emotional, spiritual health when we're dealing with chronic disease or when we're trying to get pregnant. And so I wanted to close our episode with something fun today. And I know that you are a fan of forest bathing as a yeah. method to help calm your nervous system. So I wanted to invite our listeners to participate in a forest bathing challenge where you go out into the forest, take a selfie, tag us on Instagram, and we'll let everybody know where to follow you in a minute, but to, you know, help everyone get motivated to do our forest bathing challenge. Will you just tell us really quickly, like what is forest bathing and what are the benefits and why should we get out there and take our selfie? 
Yes, I absolutely love forest bathing. And I can't believe I haven't mentioned it before as a part of my like therapy, my treatment plan, like just getting outside. So forest bathing um, is a term that comes from the Japanese term Shinrin Yoku, and it literally translates to forest bathing. And this is essentially where you're immersing yourself into nature for at least 30 to 60 minutes a week. And that's it. Okay. So just getting outside, walking in nature. And it's one of those things where I want you to, you know, no music, no, you know, just walk in nature, hear the sounds of nature, hear the, um, see, see the different animals, the leaves, you know, bristling through the wind, like how it's working, the clouds, all of that. Like literally yesterday, it was really funny. I was like talking to my, my fiance and I was like, those clouds are amazing. You know, and people don't, I was like, those, like, they're picturesque clouds. And I was like, people sleep on clouds. Like they are so cool. Mm-hmm, they really <laughs> are. So, they really are. Um, and so it's just getting out of your head and getting into nature is what it's really about. And this practice has shown to help support actually has been shown to help support more ovulatory periods, which is really cool, but also helps with stress reduction, helps support your uh, optimizing your immune function. It increases natural killer cells to help optimize your immune function um, and has been shown to help optimize cognitive and uh, brain function. And so helps with focus and memory retention as well. So all of these benefits just by going outside once a week. So powerful. So powerful. And I love it so much. And one of my favorite things is to keep going outside all through the seasons. Cause I feel like a lot of times in the winter, everyone's like, Oh, I can't go. It's too cold, you know, bundle up and keep going. And one of my favorite things to do is especially if I'm consistently going once a week, you can see all the transitioning of the seasons and you really feel the transitions and you see them and you get to embrace each season so much more. And it's so powerful because you're connecting with nature in a spiritual way in that way. Um, And one of the things I like to do in the wintertime, especially, is when you can see there's no leaves and you just see the tree branches everywhere. I like to imagine them as like bronchioles (laughs) because they look Mm -hmm. so much like our lungs, right? I like to imagine them like that. And I like to imagine them directly giving me the oxygen that I need to support while I'm doing my breath work. And then I exhale and support them with my carbon dioxide that I'm exhaling. And so I literally visualize that. And it's such like a little thing, but it brings me back to this just like state of homeostasis, just like feeling like, you know, I don't know how to explain that better Mm -hmm. than just like a yeah, I feel better just hearing you talk about it. I think we're all going to get out here in the forest right after this. I know I certainly am. So now we need to tell people when they're out there, they take their forest bathing selfie. Where can they find you in order to tag you and let you know they completed the assignment? Yes, I am so excited about this. I'm so excited to see everyone tag me. This is so fun. Please do tag me. Uh, my Instagram handle is Holistic Hanisha. That's actually my handle throughout all the platforms like TikTok and all that, but um, I'm more active on Instagram. That's the one that I'm most active on. It's Holistic Hanisha. And um, 
outside of that, you can find me at my practice. Um, Mahan Health is uh, Mahan translates to the absolute best or great. And so since I was able to experience Mahan Health myself, um, that's why I started my practice to help support others in experiencing that as well. Beautiful. I wanted to take this opportunity and thank you so much, Dr. Hanisha, for spending this time with us. It's just been such a pleasure to chat with you. For all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in and really taking charge of your fertility and learning all of these insights. To our show's incredible producer, Paola Martini, thank you so much. We look forward to sharing this episode and we'll see you all next time. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.